2: From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know something nice and beautiful and interesting? Birds, birds are all those things and they're a crucial part of many ecosystems. In fact, migratory birds link biomes up and down this continent. Northern California has been an important stop on the Pacific Flyway for centuries. Birds fly very long distances and our wetlands and waterways have allowed birds to rest and eat. But since Western colonization, 90% of California's wetlands have been destroyed by all the means of industrial society. And now climate change is making things even harder for our feathered friends. So today, we talk with experts and with you about how the avian world is changing. What have you noticed in your backyard? That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are a lot of different types of evidence of climate change. There's the temperature record, of course, you know, as provided by thermometers all over the world. There's the science of phenology, which studies seasonal change and which has found flowers blooming and trees leafing earlier in northern climes. And there's the effects that the warming atmosphere has on animals, which evolved in one climate and now have to survive in this new one we've created. That includes birds, of course, the great migrators of the more-than-human world, so today we're going to talk about the birds that migrate through Northern California and how their behavior has been shaped by humans, including, but not exclusively, by global warming. Joining us, we've got Steven Beisinger, professor of conservation biology at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Stephen. We also have Andrea Jones, director of conservation at Audubon, California. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. And we have Jenny O'Dell. Author of How to Do Nothing and Noted Birder. Welcome, Jenny. (laughs) Happy to be here. Um, Stephen, let's start with you. Can you give us sort of a global perspective on the Bay Area as an environment for migratory birds?
3: All right. Um, You know, the Bay Area here on the West Coast, we are part of the Pacific Flyway, Alistair. And so it's sort of a highway, I guess you could say, for birds moving south, moving north during different times of year with the San Francisco Bay estuary as a sort of midpoint in a way for some of their migrations or an endpoint. It's the largest estuary here on the West Coast and uh, it plays a very important role. That along with the wetlands in the Central Valley uh, for many migratory waterfowl. And you know, there's about 10,000 plus change species of birds in the world and around 4,000 of them are migratory.
2: So yeah. these movements are they're big. Yeah. You know Jenny, as a birder, do you have that stuff in your head like do you look for when the first x-bird arrives in the bay area or, or is that are you more thinking about, you know, our birds that spend all, all their time here?
1: Um, I would say, I mean, I think about both. I live pretty close to Lake Merritt. Um, so I feel like it's it's hard not to notice migratory birds. I mean, there's definitely a part of the year where the ducks, you know, the really interesting ducks show up. Um, I definitely <laughs> look forward to that. But I think we're also really fortunate to live in an area that has so many birds that are resident, you know, all year, all year round. So I would say both, but it's definitely become kind of more of a calendar for me in the last few years.
2: Mm, Yeah. Uh, Andrea, when we're talking about birds flying over Northern California and they're looking for somewhere to land, to rest, to eat, what do we know about what they're looking for and how humans have altered those environments?
4: Well, what they're looking for is food and shelter and a safe space to stop. And that's really important in migration. and. That migration pathway has been set in stone for for centuries, so birds tend to follow the same pathway every year, Mm -hmm. and what we've done is we've changed those pathways. So places like the San Francisco Bay have lost about 85% of their wetlands, Mm -hmm. and there are conservation groups, U.S. US Fish and Wildlife Service and others actively trying to restore habitats in San Francisco Bay now. so we'll have more habitats in the future, but what we see is more birds in fewer places. So they're crowding into what's left of the habitats, both in the San Francisco Bay and the Central Valley, as as Steve mentioned earlier. They're they're crowding into what's left.
2: Yeah. You know, uh Andrea, I was looking at a map of the Central Valley. You know, in pre-colonial times, and you see that like a vast amount of it is wetland. You know, places that now we think of either being for agriculture, food production, or just basically dry deserts were in fact incredibly wet and incredibly important in these ways. Um, are there? T- tell me a little bit about some of the efforts to restore the components of this this flyway, at least here uh, in the Bay Area.
4: So, in the Bay Area, um, in the South Bay in particular, that was a vast network of tidal marshes and, and mud flats, and those got converted to salt ponds for salt pond production. And also, the Bay got hardened and developed around the edge, hardened meaning there isn't that soft shoreline, which is great habitat for shorebirds and a lot of other birds coming through. But um, a lot of that land in the South Bay um, is now leased or owned by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they're conducting the largest wetland restoration project in the West. 15,000 acres are in the process of being converted back into tidal marsh and mudflats. It's an incredible engineering effort, and we are already seeing major... Amounts of birds stopping in that habitat and using it as the restoration is happening. Hmm. The same thing is happening in the North Bay, Um, tidal marshes are being what we call enhanced, um, so that they're being improved, so they drain better. And one of the innovative things that groups are doing, including Audubon, is making sure these habitats are adaptable to sea level rise and climate change. So we're building that into reconstructing these marshes to make sure that they are able to subsist for the next 100 or more years. Yeah,
2: We're talking about the birds that migrate through the Bay Area and how they've been affected by environmental change. We're joined by Andrea Jones, Director of Conservation at Audubon, California, Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing and Noted Birder, and Stephen Beisinger, Professor of Conservation Biology at UC Berkeley. We would love to hear from you on this show. We know there's birders in the audience. If you are a birder, Have you noticed changes in birds coming through the places you go over the years? Or have you spotted anything unusual that you feel like it's not supposed to be here at a particular time of year? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Just know I may ask you to make bird sounds on the air. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. But if you want to, you can. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org You know Jenny when I hear Andrea talking about, you know, how things used to be in the restoration efforts, I wonder just as someone who has really considered the the natural history of the bay area and human's role in it and the way that birds think and feel, have you tried like where do you go when you want to try and imagine what the Bay area may have been like before industrial development changed so many things about the waterways uh, of this area.
1: Um, well, it's not really how I, it's not quite like how it would have been, but I do really enjoy um, visiting Mill Harbor shoreline park, which mm-hmm. is near sort of mm-hmm. in the Oakland port. Um, I love going there because it is somewhat restored. Um, and so the, there's kind of like a little beach area and it's, it's great for birding. I mean, I'm sure many East Bay birding folks know about it, but, um, I find it really heartening because, because it's been restored. Mm. Um, it kind of gives me like some hope, um, because mm-hmm. it's, it's like a vision of like, you know, doesn't, things don't always have to constantly get worse. Like, we do have the ability to restore, <laughs> um, and, and like the birds come back, right? Um, and I, I also really enjoyed visiting a couple years ago. Um, there's like a sort of man-made habitat for least terns um, on Alameda, I think, in the airfield, which is another kind of, um, yeah, like a, a seeing birds in the midst of this like very, you know, mm. industrial kind of like formerly very bleak environment um, is is heartening.
2: Yeah, for those who don't know, Middle Harbor Shoreline Park was formed when the uh, industrial concerns of the Bay Area wanted to dredge deeper in the shipping channel, and were able to actually take a lot of that dredge and move it over through big hoses into a spot that used to be uh, another military installation there, right in the port, and now has had eel, gla- eel grass put in and it's sort of turned back into to marshland. Um, I want to ask you, Stephen, like h- how much can we restore what has been lost? You know, and I hear 90% of wetlands are gone. Um, How much are these efforts that we're talking about here, how much of a difference can they make?
3: I think they can make a big difference. Um, You know, with climate change and sea level rise, we know the wetlands in the Bay Area are going to be shifting, if they can. And um, restoring them now so that they have the opportunity to do that as things change, I think it's going to be really important. Um, and yes, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> That's one of the nice things about birds. They can, you know, they'll fly these migratory birds. They, they have some amazing, some amazing feats. Um, Arctic terns that pass through here. They migrate 25,000 miles each way. Oh, my God. their breeding grounds in Alaska to Antarctica. You know, um, and so uh, the marshes that we have uh, that support birds in the winter and the spring moving through—they're—they're going to be very important. Hmm.
2: You know, there was a, a pretty incredible quote in a Cal Matter story on this, in which you know one of the people from Fish and Wildlife, Steve, said, you know, they're talking about the effects of the, the current <laughs> drought that we're in on these birds. And the fish and wildlife person said, ducks and geese are wired to go through drought. They don't fall out of the sky. They have wings. They move where food and water is. Um, does that mean we don't have to worry about them?
3: I, I mean, I think um, I think this official is right in the sense that they they are moving around the landscape and able to find those places. But those places have to exist. And moving <clears throat> migration whether it's migration or whether it's uh, young birds when they disperse and try and find new homes um, and set up territories, that's some of the most dangerous times in their lives. Mm. And so that's the time often where mortality and death is the highest. You know, these migratory birds, they've got to find um, resources in places they don't know. They're exposed to new predators and new diseases, yeah. and they hit yeah. windows. And towers and other things, and they're prey for raptors. So it's a that kind of moving around. Yes, waterfowl were built for it, for sure. Um, but it's also a, a time of increased risk for them. Yeah,
2: we're talking about the birds migrate through northern California. How they've been in, in, affected by climate change and habitat loss. Joined by Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, noted birder. Andrew Jones, Director of Conservation at Audubon, California, and Steven Beisinger, Professor of Conservation Biology at UC Berkeley. We definitely want to hear from our birders in the community here. What have you noticed that feels like it has continued to be the same the whole time you've been birding? What have you noticed that's maybe changed? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. We'll get to your calls after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the birds of the Bay Area, how they've been affected by climate change. That is well, I don't know. Jenny, do you know what that is? The sound?
1: I do not.
2: (laughs) Anybody else? American Robin. It's an American Robin. All right. Uh, just wanted to play a little round. Uh, we are talking about birds with Stephen Beisinger, professor of conservation biology at UC Berkeley, Andrea Jones, director of conservation at Audubon, California, and Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing and uh, a birder. Um, Andrea, I wanted to toss a question to you. One of our listeners writes in to say, Max tweets, Will birds be able to find my little bird-friendly backyard among all the other backyards in the neighborhood? And kind of what I take from that question is, is there something that, uh, like, are changes in our yards helpful for birds? Like, I mean, given that, you know, they're they're but one tiny space among, you know, a, a much larger urban setting.
4: I think it's incredibly important to have backyard bird habitat if you have a backyard. Um, birds, not all birds will use that, but songbirds, migratory songbirds, wintering songbirds in the Bay Area make great use of these habitats. As you know, the Bay Area is very developed and a bird sees a patch of shrubs, some insects, and it's going to stop. Sometimes water features are really helpful because that noise that sound attracts birds to come in. And, you know, I've taken what was a lawn in my front yard in an urban setting and put in native plants, and it was filled with birds, scrub jays and and quail and others and sparrows and other species. So just the the smallest space, even a hanging hanging plant can be uh, beneficial for hummingbirds. So helping these birds either survive the winter or get through migration by having your own little stopover habitat in your backyard is, is, incredibly helpful to a lot of bird species.
2: Yeah. And Jenny, you know, you had a great article in the Atlantic about sort of what watching birds does for you or, or almost like a particular way of watching birds, watching them, not just to like see them for a moment, but to kind of watch them through time and what that did for you.
1: Yeah. Um, that, that, Article uh, focused a lot on bush tits, which I just want to give a shout out to as <laughs> one of my favorite uh, kinds of birds that we have here in the Bay Area. Um, and I one of the reasons I mentioned them was because they build these really amazing nests. They look kind of like a sock that's hanging down from the tree with a little hole in it. Um, and and you know, basically, that there's something about watching a bird do something versus just kind of like seeing, seeing it once and checking it off that, you know, over the years, as I got better at being able to identify birds, it, it turned into something much more sort of like, what, what are they doing? What are they creating? What are they responding to? um, You know, like, what are they doing differently right now than, you know, as opposed to earlier in the year? Um, And it really kind of turns them into agents rather than sort of, Mm. I don't know, um object yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that that's also for me like really valuable as just like a a reminder to pay attention to these other um indicators of time passing and seasons and, and other forms mm-hmm. of change
2: let's bring in uh some birders cynthia in sonoma welcome
6: yeah hi um I just wanted to comment on how I'm noticing fewer quantities of birds. I might have to look really hard to see the same number of species, but if I find them, the quantity is down. There aren't mm-hmm. as many, so they are harder to find in that case. I wanted to turn everybody on to Cornell um, website BirdCast and go under Migration Tools. You can type in a county, like I typed in Sonoma County, and November 1st, uh, the numbers of birds flying over Sonoma County, 14,700. Hmm. October 1st, 132,800. Um, so it's really interesting, and it even suggests which birds might uh, be flying and have been recorded by the radar.
2: That's so, that's so interesting. How long have you been uh, birding, Cynthia? How long have you been checking things out?
6: About uh three decades. Oh man. And man. I also participate and lead a group for the Christmas bird count.
2: Oh yeah. Well Andrea, that's um, thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom, Cynthia. Andrea, can you tell us a little bit more about this Christmas bird count?
4: Yes, yeah, so the Christmas bird count um, was started by Audubon over Audubon Society over a hundred years ago. And it was an effort to uh, do something than an annual hunt. It was an effort to go out and observe birds, and instead of hunting, and um, and sort of celebrated the notion of birds being here in the winter. And it's become an incredible tool, a community science tool to track birds over time. And so. Those circles, hundreds of Christmas bird counts all over the United States and beyond the United States. And you can participate as a volunteer and go and count birds in your circle and contribute to this great wealth of information. And these, these counts are, are fun, they're sometimes competitive. You know, we want to see who has the, the most number of species in a Christmas bird count, but ultimately the data provides us a window into how birds are doing in the winter how their populations are changing, how their ranges may be shifting. So thank you, Cynthia, and everyone else that could participate. counts. That data is very valuable for scientists.
2: And they're coming up, too, just so people know. Um, Stephen uh, Beisinger, professor of conservation biology at UC Berkeley. Birds and bird counting seems to be a place where, you know, citizen science or community science and professional scientists like yourself seem to actually have an incredible amount of overlap. Like, how much do you rely on the data collected by everyday birders going around their communities?
3: I think there's a tremendous resource that's being compiled right now by birders, and they're taking their observations and they're submitting them through eBird, which is, uh, or iNaturalist, which are programs that allow them to basically... Put in that information and it gets checked by by others in the community for accuracy. It's not always 100% accurate um, but it's providing a glimpse as your previous caller indicated to all kinds of phenomena. because there's so many more birders out there um, and they're enjoying themselves seeing what they can see each day and putting that information in. So I think it's becoming a very important tool for monitoring bird populations. That's not to say that we're finding interesting ways to analyze them. That's one of the challenges that that Mm. we face right now, how
2: to best use that citizen science.
6: Mm. But it's
2: important. And are you, you know, her, her anecdotal observation over 30 years of birding was that the diversity of bird species is maybe lower, as well as the number of birds that are there uh, is smaller. Is that also borne out by other lines of evidence? Yes. Um, Alistair, we're missing six billion birds hmm.
3: since the 1960s. I don't know where we're going to find them, but basically if we look across all species, there there's, was some interesting research published a few years ago that suggests we've had major declines in a lot of groups and we're missing now compared to... Um, the early 19 and mid 1960s, about six billion birds. Hmm. Interestingly, the one group that's doing better are the wetland birds. They Their decline has sort of um, slowed down. Huh. What do you make of that? Well, it goes back to the question you asked earlier. Does the restoration work? And hmm. I do think it does. And people have worked hard to try and protect
2: the wetlands that we do have left and to restore them. Hmm. We uh, let's go back to the phones uh, interesting question from uh, Jamie in San Francisco welcome
7: hello my name is uh, yeah, Jaime Chavez oh Jaime,
2: Jaime, my, my apologies
7: yeah, no worries um, and I've been birding all my life and I just moved to San Francisco a couple of years ago and that, we've been banding birds in the Sierras in the Seychelles Creek um, and what just to, to put in context you know we catch birds that are coming back to the exact same bush where we netted the year before. So my question here is how, in the persp- you know, with, this, with this context, with all the wildfires that we've seen and the frequency of them, uh, you can imagine how impactful the devastation of these habitats are for these birds that are coming to exactly the same place to breed. Um, is there any data or anything that we can see the impact of these events in the future of these populations in, in Northern California? Yeah, Thank you.
2: Jaime, thank you so much. I, I just want to, for one second, dilate, maybe with Jenny, before we answer your actual question, Jenny, I mean, how remarkable is it just to consider these birds finding their way back to the, the exact bush where they were netted the year before?
1: Yeah, it definitely gives you a a very strange sense of time and space, right? Like, <laughs>
6: right, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, I have noticed um, that, yeah, birds in just in my neighborhood in Oakland Um, are extremely particular about where they hang out even and it's like you know if you look at a range map and say like a a bird guide it has a big you know blob of some color over some area but it doesn't mean that anywhere in there you're going to be able to find that bird right it's like I remember realizing at some point like oh right like I live in an apartment and like that bird lives in a shrub like it's not (laughs) really any different
2: (laughs) yeah um Stephen, how about on, on Jaime's question itself, which is the effect of wildfires on our bird populations, which, you know, they, they, uh, another form of habitat destruction.
3: Yes, and another form of climate change, because as a climate has warmed, it's also dried in many places, and we're getting bigger fires and more frequent fires. I, we've always had the fires. Um, so I think the key question is, how large and how frequent they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because that particular bird that's been banded, you know, it might come back for four or five more years. Um, and that would be its expected lifetime. Yeah. During that lifetime, you might expect not to have a fire. <laughs> but if we're starting to see fires occurring in more frequent and
2: larger patches, then we've got a problem. Mm. Andrea, a um, practical question on wildfires as well. And thank you so much for that question, made. I'm, I'm still not over if the bird's coming back to the exact same bush. I know they do it, but hearing about it still blows my mind. Um, Matt up in Sonoma writes, After the wildfires, it took a toll on the birds. And I recently saw a beautiful woodpecker eating a fire-damaged tree looking for grubs. I'd love to support wild birds, but what's appropriate? Water, extra food sources, housing? Andrea Jones?
4: I would say all of the above. Um, the, one of the birds that is adapted to the fire landscape is a blackback woodpecker, and that might be the bird that he's referring to seeing um, in a burnt tree. So there are some birds that do come in post-fire, but in order to help birds around fires um, be able to survive through the winter or to the next year, it's great to put in a water feature it can be just something really simple, um, like a, a tub with rocks in it with with water, or you can go really fancy and have a, a drip feature. Putting out feeders is important. Um, putting in native plants, some of which are able to better adapted to to fire in the landscape, um, so that there's cover. And like Jenny said, you know, it's an apartment. They need they need everything. They need food, lodging, and shelter. And um, so, for being able to provide some of those to to help a bird um, adapt post-fire is, is going to be really important. Um, the one note right now is that we are in a season of avian fluenza. And um, and so it's a little hard to put out bird feeders and water sources right now. We're actually advising people not to, but in, in these places that have- Wait, and, of-
2: and hold on, just uh, just so people get, you're advising people not to put out water sources right now because they essentially act like a super spreader bath.
4: Yes. Um, Birds come into bird feeders in big numbers. They don't do social distancing very well. And so they do spread flu. And this is a particularly bad strain of flu this year. And it's hit the Bay Area, parts of Northern California, Central Valley, and some of Southern California. And until it passes, um, we're advising people not to put out water and bird feeders. Hopefully that will pass soon and um, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife keeps weekly updates on the status of the the bird flu and um, as birds are concentrating more, particularly during drought in fewer areas, there's even more chance of birds spreading it so that that is, it's really hard not to put out bird feeders and water for birds right now during a drought but we do have this avian influenza situation. Mm.
2: A couple of comments. Lisa writes in to say, we created and maintain a year round habitat garden in our small backyard, and it is full of resident and migrating birds every day. One essential part of this habitat is our neighbor's live oak tree, which hosts a stunning biodiversity of birds through providing food and forage, perching places and more. One tree is an incredible ecosystem to itself. And in the intense focus to clear vegetation around homes for fuel reduction, it feels necessary to highlight the importance of these trees for birds birds. And other wildlife. Let's uh, go to Lori in Fremont. Hi. Hi. Welcome.
8: Oh, I'm uh, concerned about the uh, the South Bay uh, area here in Newark, California. Mm-hmm. Along along the very edge of the of the water here, they've built up. They're starting to build up a huge apartment build up right up, right along the very edge of the bay. And uh, the uh, uh, Ohlone Animal Rehabilitation people live there, and I guess they're going to close their their uh, uh, their place there because uh, of all this encroachment. I don't understand what's going on, and also I'm also concerned about the uh, what happens to the bird migration in this area of heavy airline traffic. Every 15 minutes, another airline is flying into San Francisco or Oakland. How do these uh, poor animals have to dodge hmm. airlines?
2: That's interesting. I, you know, it's interesting, Lord. The sky strikes me as quite quite large, and but I, but I don't know, Steve. Um, of these, Stephen uh, Beisinger, com- professor of conservation biology at, at UC Berkeley. Wh- which of these different kinds of human encroachment into the airspace and uh, marsh space of uh, of birds are kind of like the most worrisome? Well, I mean, we worry about uh,
3: bird strikes on airplanes for the safety of people in airplanes, for sure. Um, And birds and planes don't mix very well, but they don't happen. Those bird strikes don't happen so often. Um, They do certainly, I think, um, act as a a temporary uh, disturbance for the birds. So um, species that might be hanging around near Oakland Airport or... um, or around the, the uh, airport San Francisco there, they, they try to minimize the kind of habitats that would attract those birds. So that said, you can write off the wetlands that used to be in that area, which make
2: the other wetlands all that much more important. Hmm. We're talking about birds that migrate through and live in the Bay Area and how they've been affected by climate change and other forms of human activity. Joined by Steven Beisinger, Conservation biologist at UC Berkeley, Andrea Jones, Director of Conservation at Audubon, California, and Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing and A Noted Bird Watcher. If you're a birder, give us a call. We want to know what kind of changes you've noticed in your own backyard or in the places where you go to watch birds, in the migration patterns or birds that you've been able to to spot. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at org. We do also have uh, a suggestion from Tom um, of A Place You Could Go Bird. Uh, Tom writes, I live next to Elsie Romer Bird Sanctuary in Alameda. And at this moment." You can visit the sanctuary and at low tide, see a spectacle of thousands of migratory shorebirds foraging in the mud flats on their way to the wintering grounds in the south. It's amazing to witness and tells the story of how important the bay is for the pacific flyway that is again the Elsie romer bird sanctuary there in alameda when we come back we're going to take more of your calls about birding get to a few more of your comments as well i'm alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the birds that live in and migrate through Northern California, how they've been affected by human activity. Joined by Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, a noted birder. Andrea Jones, Director of Conservation at Audubon, California. And Stephen Beisinger, Professor of Conservation Biology at UC Berkeley. Let's let's go back to the phones uh, right away here. Alex in Mountain View, welcome to the show.
7: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just uh, had a Uh, Quick comment, Uh, most of the discussions of uh, climate change, uh, they talk about uh, the damage done to the climate by individual people, but they rarely ever talk about – almost never talk about the number of people in the population. So the population of the U.S. and the world, and specifically also California, continues to grow. And as a result, uh, the encroachment of humankind on these bird habitats and the destruction of the climate – uh, isn't going to stop it might slow down a little bit but it's going to keep going on until things become irreversibly uh i guess bad and i was wondering uh, well uh, the opinion of your guest whether population growth is something that uh, she should take a stand on and and to be part of the total solution for climate change so that we can protect precious things like bird habitats
2: Uh, Thanks for that perspective, Alex. Andrea, how how do you think about this?
4: Well, Audubon comes at this um, by thinking about how to maintain habitats as populations grow. We don't address population growth directly, but we think about the populations of, of, of birds and the habitats they need to survive. And also we think about access and how people can have access to nature, because as populations grow, We don't want to be in areas that are deprived of nature, so it's really important. And San Francisco Bay is a perfect example of a lot of places around the Bay, a Bay Trail and places that people can access nature. There's also great laws and regulations in California to to limit development or at least mitigate for it. And in the Bay Area, and particularly the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, Keeps a good check on on development in the bay and make sure that the impacts to wildlife and birds are minimized at the same time. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. John uh, writes in to say, "I live in a canyon near Moraga. It's kind of a short story uh, about the western slope flycatcher." He says, "A western slope flycatcher couple would regularly nest each spring and leave in September. This last year, they gave up the nest after intense heat killed off their hatchlings." We live further up the hill, out of the canyon where it's hotter. Near the cooler lower creek, I still hear the calls of other flycatchers. Jenny, I wanted to kind of toss this one to you. I mean, in part because people develop these relationships with the birds that are around them. I mean, for me personally, it would be like the hummingbirds that live in my yard. If they were to go away, I would be not just sad on a sort of conservation biology level, but sad on just like a human emotional level because they're kind of part of my. Of my world um how do you kind of reckon with going into this activity birding that is knowing that maybe things you know we're, we're down six billion birds since the 1960s as we heard earlier
1: right right i mean i think i say at some point towards the end of how to do nothing that it that logically it doesn't make sense to tie your emotional well-being to, like <laughs> to something that is in, so imperiled but but then i sort of come to the conclusion it's like well what are you not are you not going to love anything? Like everything is,
2: <laughs> everything is, is you impactful. know,
1: like, yeah. So, um, and I just, I think like, like the joy that I, that I do get and the sense of like being at home in a world um and not having, you know, what Robin Wall Kimmerer calls like species loneliness and in, in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, um, like that, that is so valuable. I mean, I need that. Um, And so it's almost like, I don't even remember ever really like having that debate with myself. It was just like, I started paying attention to birds and then I got more and more fascinated with them. And then I really cared about them. And then I really loved them. And it's like, I don't, I like, I feel that pain and like uh, it definitely is part of my experience, but it's never really been like a question of whether or not to continue paying this kind of attention. Mm -hmm.
2: You know, Stephen, you're you're professional at this, and I think some you know scientists oftentimes will want to maintain an objective stance vis a vis the things that they're studying. But do you feel this sense of loss when you you know tell us about how many birds are not there that would have been otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I started out like Jenny watching birds, and then I drank the Kool Aid,
3: <laughs> and uh, got more and more interested in the science behind it. And um, I wasn't a kid birder. But um, I decided that where I could make my impact and where I wanted to make an impact was trying to understand uh, how to how to keep all the all the cogs, all the pieces of the wheel here on planet Earth, and um, how to, how to conserve birds. And so um, I I do feel that when I'm when I have a chance to go out and look and enjoy, mm. and uh, that's something that you
2: know I I still enjoy doing. Uh, let's bring in another bird. John in Concord. Welcome.
7: Hey, Alexis. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, two things I wanted to get the, the your professional comments on. Three species that I can think of seem to be thriving. Uh, Canada geese, wild turkeys, and crows. I actually um, learned of some research about Crows replacing gulls on the Half Moon Bay, uh, the Half Moon Bay landfill. Mm. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a professional perspective yeah. on that. Yeah.
2: Gosh, that's interesting. I, I mean, oftentimes when we talk about adapting to climate change, you, there are some winners and losers in this. Um, Andrew, do you want to take a, a first uh, stab at this one?
4: Sure. Um, some of those are congregatory species and they're social And so they have learned and adapted to do well in human environments. And in effect, we feed them because open landfills or dumpsters or or trash left around becomes a food source for these birds. And so they have adapted and they do well in in human landscapes. Other birds don't do as well. Canada geese, um, the agriculture and especially corn and other crops have basically caused Canada geese to both expand their range and also find food in the winter instead of migrating. So we get Canada geese to become resident year round because they can find food sources year round where traditionally that would have been a more migratory species. So, yes, we have some birds that are expanding their range and thriving in human landscapes. um, But then we have more birds that are not thriving and are severely threatened by by climate change and um, reduced amount of available
2: habitat. So you're saying the geese around Lake Merritt or Middle Harbor Shoreline Park that, that Jenny referenced earlier, they would have in the past have left, but now they're sticking around.
4: Exactly. Um that's that's what's happening is it's happening across the United States with, with Canada geese that they are staying longer in places where they would have traditionally been more migratory. Mm-hmm. It, the turkey vulture is an interesting story because that is actually an eastern species that has been introduced to the west that wouldn't have been here historically. Wow. But they arriving. I lived in Oakland recently and I had a turkey on my car. <laughs> so they <laughs> Or another species that is, is doing well in the human environment.
2: Wow. So, so interesting. Um, let's go uh, back to the phones and Julie in Napa Valley. Welcome.
9: Hi, it's, uh, it's Julie. I have uh, grapes and pomegranates and lemons and olives in Food. And um, I'm an organic farm. So I'm trying as hard as I can to give um, an opportunity for species to come back. But specifically, I'd love to know, uh, you've been focusing on wetlands habitat, and I think that there's a great opportunity for farmlands to relieve monoculture. Mm. And I'd love to hear the panel's comment on that. Um, Specifically, I wanted to uh, share that I use a tool from the Wild Farm Alliance that enables me to... um, we kind of connect the dots, uh, putting in natural habitat, uh, looking, being able to gear in uh, what insects that attracts, and then also specific bird species. Hmm. So you can kind of, in a farm, relieve uh, establish hedgerows or other relief of monoculture. Um, so there's just, I think, a great opportunity for a lot of um Farming um, in in row crops, in viticulture, and so on. So I'd love to get yeah. the panel's take on that. But Wild Farm Alliance offers a great tool.
2: That's really interesting, um, Stephen. Do you want to do you want to take this one? I've mean, particularly heard about rice for waterfowl too, right? too, that you can sort of flood in a gentle way these rice fields, and then create habitat for for birds here in Northern California.
3: Yeah, I mean I think the caller is is dead on. There's so many things that we can do um in with with agriculture to make it more bird friendly. <clears throat> and uh and um I think that's also happened with you know with sort of the pop-up wetlands like like the rice that you're talking about, Alistair. Um and we've we found even um even from our backyards that the small things that we do as individuals, they do add up because mm-hmm. as one of your previous callers said, there's a lot of individuals now, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
3: 8 billion of us, uh, yeah. 6 billion missing birds, 8 billion people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do some math here and figure out that for sure there's relationships between um, between human population growth, our demands, uh, our changes of, of the climate,
2: and the changes that we see in biodiversity. Yeah. Laurie writes in with just a bit of a celebration, which, Jenny, I thought maybe you and I could could talk a little bit about. Uh, Laurie writes, I've moved from woodland bird environment in Fairfax to home on Tiburon in the San Francisco Bay, and I am in awe with my new neighbor's pelicans. They fly south in squadrons. They fly low sometimes, just inches above me when I swim in the bay. What is their schedule? Why do some stay and hang out um first jenny from you do you do you also share i share this appreciation for pelicans they're my favorite uh water bird um do you also love them
1: of course i mean this is a big big spoiler but the end of how to do nothing is just me staring at pelicans (laughs) 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 at middle harbor shoreline park um yeah because i mean they're at lake Merritt as well and i think you know um that's an example of a bird that even you know someone who would not identify as a birder is probably going to say is amazing um for so many reasons i mean it's basically really looks like a dinosaur right like it just um it's huge um that just to have one fly over you um and just think about that wingspan i mean i guess it's kind of you know what i was saying earlier about loving birds is like some of it is just like this sense of like I can't believe this exists. <laughs> yeah. Um and even knowing that there used to be more of them still like when you see one uh it's just like I'm kind of like speechless.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're they're just such powerful birds too. It's incredible. Um you know Fiona, one of our listeners just wanted to respond to an early uh, earlier call about Uh, the earth's population of humans. Fiona writes, I wanted to address an earlier caller's comment about population growth conflicting with wildlife conservation. I believe this is a dangerous narrative and disagree wholeheartedly. I would encourage this listener and others to focus on areas where human activities and ecology are not at odds, such as the tremendous opportunity for backyards, schools, parks, and especially farms to serve as habitat and provide ecosystem services. Um, Thank you for that, uh, comment fiona let's uh let's get another call in here bob in oakland hey bob can good you
7: afternoon. hear me oh there you are yes Welcome. i can alexis it's good to hear your voice so a couple of comments uh turkeys were imported so i'm not excited about them but what i think protecting birds means is get rid of keeping your cat inside are they cats and crows Um, harm bird populations. Crows eat eggs, and cats just climb trees and create havoc. The one great spot that I would bring out to everybody is in the delta um, up towards Byron, and what we see is the Sandhill Crane Migration, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. You spend your day there, and you wait with uh, your lunch, and in the evening when they roust, uh, it is a beautiful sight to see. So much noise, so much activity. I would highly recommend it.
2: Uh, I've been wanting to do that. Um, so do you? is there a spot you put in on the map, Bob, to go see these sandhill cranes migrate in the Delta?
7: Well, there is actually a sandhill crane, um, uh, huh, not park. Um, Viewing a location now, or whatever?
6: Yeah. yeah.
7: yeah um, no, I'm sorry. I, I say... I say Byron, but it's not really Byron. It's close by on the Delta. Yeah, just look up Sand Hill Crane. There's a, not just the sanctuary, but there's a, a center that has displays and uh, rangers that talk about the cranes. And they actually have some pools that they hope the cranes fly into. But quite honestly, it's the rice fields. And the rice fields, the farmers in the rice fields get a break, I believe, from the government – that allow that they don't do all their draining and harvesting at the same time to allow for the migration of the sandhill crane. Right. Andrew, can you talk to us a, a little bit about this? I've, I've heard about this over the years,
2: The going to see this out in the Delta.
4: Going to see sandhill cranes coming in for winter roost is one of my favorite things to do. As there's nothing quite like it. And this is the time of year to go. Audubon, California just wrote a blog post. If you go to our website and we list some of the best places to see the sandhill cranes in the Delta, one of them is Staten Island and you go at dusk and the cranes that spread out during the day into the rice fields or the corn fields or other crops to feed, they come into wetter areas at night and roost together where they're safer and surrounded by water less at risk from predators. So as a result, you see the cranes coming in as the sun sets and we're talking tens of thousands of cranes and they're all talking to each other and communicating. The same time snow geese are coming in, ducks are coming in, it's absolutely spectacular. And again, we offered some places that you could go see this, um, this phenomenon and it just happens in the winter and then the birds leave late winter and head back up to their breeding grounds. Highly recommend this.
2: Mm. Such a reminder that the Delta and the Bay Area are the biggest estuary on the entire western coast of the, uh, of, the, of North and South America, from my understanding. Um, and are there, you know, one last question for you, Andrew, on the, the cranes. Are their populations doing okay?
4: They are doing okay. And, and that is thanks to a lot of conservation efforts by a lot of different conservation groups, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and others to maintain their habitat both on the breeding grounds and provide stopover and wintering habitats for them in the winter. And there's places all over the western U.S., Bosque de la Apache in Arizona and um, other other places um, along the flyway that you can go see these birds in in really large numbers. And I think that there's been a very strong conservation effort going on for a long time to, to, to keep these birds' numbers up.
2: Uh, Last couple comments, one, a recommendation from a listener. Heron's Head Park is at the port of San Francisco with restored salt marsh wetlands near the end of uh, Cesar Chavez with a list of more than 100 birds. It's a spit of land that was going to be another Bay Bridge, and it's a great place for a walk. Molly also writes in to say, Since moving into a house with two large oaks 10 years ago, I have followed a pair of blue jays that return every year. Most of the season, they're just in the background. I can always tell when they have a nest and little ones. Suddenly, my cat cannot be outdoors without cover. Anytime he steps out the back door onto the porch, they set up a huge ruckus. If he heads near their nesting tree, he is dive-bombed and harassed. I also noticed more birds closer to the house during this period. It's striking that birds can mold other animals' behavior, including creating safety for other birds. We have been talking about the birds that migrate through and live in the Bay Area and how they've been affected by all the different things humans have done to this environment, including climate change. We've been joined by Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing and Noted Birder. Thanks for joining us, Jenny. Thank you so much. I always love talking with you as well as Andrea Jones, director of conservation at Audubon, California. Thanks so much, Andrea. Thank you. And finally, Steven Beisinger, professor of conservation biology at UC Berkeley. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks to all of you birders out there who came through on this show. I appreciate that. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.
9: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.